Um, we are blessed this morning to have the assistant to the director of theology at Riverstone Church sharing the word with us this morning, um, Mike Peacock. Come on, Mike. Give Mike a hand. Woo! too excited. Uh, this is not a joke, by the way. I, and there are a lot of you here. I did not realize that until just now. Um, yes, Chris gave me the mic this morning, and then he left. Uh, Scott is also not here, which means they get to deal with whatever I say next week. Um, if you want, go ahead and open your Bibles to the last chapter of Luke. Uh, we're going to be in... Um, the last chapter of Luke and the beginning of Acts this morning, uh, and then we're going to be peppering some other stuff too, so we're going to be all over the place. Um, before we get started, uh, a couple of things. One, today, um, this really came out of conversations that Chris and I and some other people have been having the last couple of months, which reminds me, if Chris ever asks you what you're thinking about or reading, don't tell him because he'll put you up here. Um, <laughs> And my hope is not to teach against something, but point us to something. Uh, and that is our life in the kingdom. Uh, the last few weeks we've been talking in Acts about the beginnings of the church and the early church and uh, what they did. But I really want us to focus on the kingdom and more importantly, what our job is. Because our, our old life does not stop at the moment of discipleship. We have a job to do going forward. Uh, and number two, in the text that we're in this morning... Um, it brings up politics, and uh, we, I know we're all exhausted by political talk right now. Uh, there it is. <clears throat> um, just the political back and forth, some of us have whiplash, and some of us just don't care. Amen. This guy. There he is. Man, this is going great so far. Um, but what I want us to do this morning, because we're so easily looking at everything in life through political lenses depending on which side you're on. Um, and what I want us to do this morning is take those off and just kind of set them over here. Okay? Uh, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, um, so don't be concerned about that. Uh, but we need to see what the Scripture says about it. So um, let's go ahead and start and read beginning of verse 13. Uh, this is um, when Jesus appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says, and behold, two of them were going that very day to the village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were taking, talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that, he, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were 
with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? while he was explaining the scriptures to us. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you have seen that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead and the third day, or from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And let's move over to Acts. I know that was a lot, but Luke reiterates that account in the beginning of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, bear with me, Philophilus. Growing up, we would have just said hard word. Um, <clears throat> about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering. By many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while, we were, while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And as they were gazing into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your son that paid it all. God, we are so thankful for your steadfastness in our time of weakness and trouble. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Holy Spirit, would you come and enlighten us this morning? Would you just minister to our hearts and give us a new vision for the kingdom? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so for the last several weeks, like I talked about, we've been in the book of Acts talking about the early church. In the beginning days of the church and all of the disciples that were made in that time, um, but I really want to talk about the kingdom and why it's important that we realize we have a job to do. Um, Luke says in the first chapter of Acts that Jesus spent 40 days after the resurrection talking and appearing to the disciples to just talk about and preach the kingdom, like it was important or something like that. Um, Now, I've been reading The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. If you've not read it, I would recommend you pick it up. Uh, I also figured... If I read some of this this morning, you might not think Chris is actually left because I feel like he teaches from it every week. Um, but in here, he talks about we all have our own kingdom that is uniquely our own, um, where what we choose to happen happens. Um, he defines in his book uh, the divine conspiracy as uh, our kingdom as the range of our effective will. So um, I'm the king of Mike Peacock. Um, <clears throat> So whatever I can enforce my will on, whatever I want to happen, happens in my kingdom. So my clothes are in my kingdom. I dressed myself this morning. You're welcome. Um, My hair is in my kingdom. I put a bunch of junk in it this morning to make it look this good, Uh, even though that's a little grayer and thinner than I would prefer. Um, Some parts of the kingdom are a little thicker um, than I would prefer. Uh, My car is in my kingdom. I use the steering wheel and the gas pedal to make it take me where I want to go, right? So anything that I can bend to my will is in my kingdom. Now, as citizens of the kingdom, we have had dominion and rule ever since the beginning of the kingdom. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 through 30, indicates that God assigned us to collectively rule over all living things on earth. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground. Everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Now, the kingdom of Mike Peacock runs into problems when I try to dominate and force other people to live by my rules. Uh, If you're honest with yourself, you know this very well if you've been married for more than a week. Um, That first fight was a doozy. Um, So there's two things that happen when I try to force people to live by my rules. Number one... 
their will and actions, the will and actions of that person can only be as good as I am. Uh, if I'm the king and what I say goes, their thoughts are my thoughts, their will is my will, their actions is my actions. And if you've known me for very long, you know that's not going to go very well. Because without Christ-centered community and accountability and repentance, my heart drifts towards lustful, greedy, terrible, dark things, right? Which makes serving Jesus and being a member of his kingdom so great because his will is perfect. He is perfect. He is for us. He loves us. He died for us, right? And then the second thing is most people don't like it when we tell them what to do. Uh, That's how wars get started, right? Um, Much of our time and energy is spent trying to dominate others or escape domination by them. This can be as small as office politics or all the way to international relations on a global scale. Um, We just don't like people telling us what to do, what to believe, what to think, anything. We don't bow to tyrant kings, we defeat them. And in protest, we'll dump their tea in the harbor, right? We're Americans. Not even an amen on that. That's fine. It's all right. We're seeing this played out so much right now in everyday life. Uh, With an election in 40-something days, which none of us are excited about, fear of COVID or the sniping on social media, it's everywhere. We can't even talk about football without politics getting involved. Or like people having all kinds of opinions about it. It's a game, okay? I'm, you're getting me frustrated. <laughs> Bring my, break out my T.D. Jakes voice. <clears throat> now, using Willard's definition of a kingdom, we can infer that the kingdom of God is the range of his effective will, where what he wants done is done. Now, the person of God himself and the action of his will are organizing principles of his kingdom, but everything that obeys those principles, whether by nature or by choice, is within his kingdom. I'm going to say that one more time. The person of God himself and the action of his will are organizing principles of his kingdom, but everything that obeys those principles, whether by nature or by choice, is within his kingdom. Now, the disciples, when Jesus appears to them, They're in shock, first of all. But on the road to Emmaus, the disciples are talking about why didn't he redeem the kingdom? And then when Jesus appears to the 11, one of the first questions they ask him is, now are you going to do what you came here to do, basically? Are you going to start crushing some skulls? Like, let's let's get this done. And so, now there's some history that we have to go through why they're asking that and why they think that, right? And I'm going to read this part so I don't mess up the timeline. But prior to the birth of Jesus, the people of Israel had experienced a turbulent relationship with God. And as a result of their disobedience and sin, God made them his chosen people and treasured possession, going all the way back to the covenant made with Abraham and Jacob. In the days of the prophet Samuel, the Jews rejected God as their king and demanded Samuel provide for them an earthly king, similar to the kings who ruled over the nations around them. Now rejected as king... God nonetheless gives the people what they want and establishes a temporary line of kings who would rule over them until Israel's captivity in Babylon. After Saul disobeys the Lord and has been rejected by God as king, God anoints David as king and promises out of David's line a new anointed king that would come to redeem Israel and establish his rightful place on the throne. This was the prophecy of Jesus coming and the new covenant made to all of us, Jews and Gentiles. 
So when the disciples ask this question, they're asking, when are you going to establish your physical kingdom here? So for generations, the Jews anticipated the coming Messiah as a military leader or a political revolutionary that would come in and take over, right? And he would break the chains of bondage that they were under. However, Jesus didn't come to establish a physical kingdom. His whole entire ministry was about that. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here. He manifested the kingdom. He proclaimed the kingdom. He healed the sick, raised the dead. Right? He manifested the kingdom of God here. Jesus' entire ministry was announcing the access of, to the kingdom now. That he redeemed the Jews and Gentiles and re- redeemed us all from the grips of sin and death. It's all right, you can be excited about that if you want. All right, so politics. We got to do it pretty quick. I don't know how long this is going to be. I ran through it a couple of times, but if we're done in the next 10 minutes, that means we can eat tacos sooner, Okay. So, man, I like her. Golly. So, the Jews, the, the disciples are asking Jesus, when are you going to do this? When are you going to save us from a political standpoint and establish your kingdom? Y'all, we're still doing this today. We're waiting for a political revolution to take place and fix our, country, our country's problems. It will never happen. Man, I'm glad y'all are pumped about that. We will never elect someone that will fix all of our problems because our greatest problem is our unbelief in Jesus. Uh, If you're familiar with Matt Chandler, he's one of my favorite pastors. Uh, He's the pastor of the Village Church in Texas. Uh, He said this recently, which is fantastic because Chris and I started talking about this a couple months ago. Um, And I've had several emotions since then, and I think I'm excited about it this morning, uh, being up here. But... uh, People are, and the church specifically, is talking about politics. And not necessarily who to vote for or who not to vote for, but the unity in the church that is hard to find right now. Uh, And he says this, The idea that a political system can save or heal us is absolutely not true. We can legislate certain acts of morality, but you cannot legislate the transformation of a person's heart. Nor can you legislate someone to become fully alive. We must have and rely on something that's more powerful than political force and might. More powerful than legislation and boundaries to get us to life. So political policy and legislation cannot solve what's most wrong with the world. And he's talking about our sin and our rejection of Christ. So what's wrong with, and I just said that several times, but I'm going to say it again. What's most wrong with the world is our sin and our unbelief in Jesus. And we can't pass legislation to make people accept Jesus and make them Lord. Right, I would argue too that this country is looking for Christ in our political leaders and they don't even realize it. Like if you look at the qualifications we have for people being elected now and in our cancel culture, because of the internet and Twitter, we can go all the way back to middle school to see if you have just a thread of moral fiber. And if you don't, and if you've made a mistake, no matter major or minor that it is, you can be canceled. Right? Which is, anyways, I'm gonna stick to my notes. Our society is looking for the perfection of Christ and they will never find it. And politics are the people that run that system. In fact, the social and political realm, along with our hearts, are the only places in all of creation that the kingdom of God is permitted to be absent. I'm gonna say that again, because I love that. 
In fact, the social and political realm, our social and political lives, however you want to say it, along with our hearts, are the only places in all of creation that the kingdom of God is permitted to be absent. So all other creation on the earth proclaims his name, is under his will, but the places that we rule and reign, we've rejected him. We've pushed him out. And please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not telling you not to vote. Please vote. But just know that as citizens of the kingdom, we have a higher calling than what our political convictions are. When you go in and out of that ballot box, you're making a decision, but we're still bending the knee at the throne of God. Right? Man, you guys are awesome. And for some of us, that's hard to hear because we're not used to America being number two, right? But serving the kingdom is a higher calling than our political convictions, and our confidence should and always be in Christ. I would also say right now that the church, by and large, is missing it. We're missing an opportunity to be salt and light and push away the darkness in times that are bananas, right? For the last six, seven months, we've had fear of COVID and all of the political ramifications that have gotten thrust into that. And now we've got an election and it's instead of being agents of peace, we've gone down in the mud and we're slinging it along with them. Because of our confidence in Christ his love for us, his provision for us, his mercy for us, we should be able to extend that same grace and peace that's been given to us. How can we do that to the world if we can't fix it in our own house? Part of the problem is what we're consuming shapes us. Some of us are so constantly feeding on MSNBC and Fox News and CNN that it's, and what's being passed on social media, it's growing fear, hopelessness, and hatred toward the people that are different than us. Right? Now, I'm not saying if you watch CNN and Fox a couple times a week or even once that you eventually begin hating people. That's not what I'm saying. Oh, careful. All right. I'm going to tread lightly here. But when we start to watch enough of that, it plants a seed of difference, right? It's us versus them, like Chris talked about a couple weeks ago. Then some guy with a MAGA bumper sticker cuts you off in traffic. And that seed starts to grow roots, right? And then you take in a political argument on Facebook and start saying things that you would never say to someone else's face. Social media is the most impersonal, personal thing on the planet. You can say whatever you want as long as you never see that person again. That person person retaliates and the seed starts to grow and turns into anger. And before you know it, you're fighting with everyone about why they should vote for your candidate and why the other guy is the worst. When in reality, they both have shady pasts at best. We start demeaning people for thinking or voting or questioning differently than us. And the only reason I know this is because it happened to me recently. Um, I know. And I got the microphone. I'm doubting Chris's judgment right now. Um... (laughs) There's a podcast that I listen to three or four times a week. I'm not going to say the name of the show. Uh, but it's a radio show. Um, and all of the guys on this show lean pretty heavily one way, right, across the aisle. Um, 
thankfully they don't talk about politics all the time, but when they do talk about it, because there is an election coming up, it's news, um, they know where they stand, and they know where people should stand, right? Now, I, in the last, I don't know, 10 years, have no opinion about politics, except that it's all terrible, and it's all wrong. Um, <laughs> um, glad I'm not the only one. But I noticed a couple of weeks ago, I heard a story about the other political party that they don't belong to. And I just remember thinking in my head, like, man, they're the worst. And it caught me off guard. Like, I don't think that. Like, why, why do I think that? Like, I don't, I have no opinions one way or the other. And it just reminded me that what we consume is shaping us, right? And some of us are feasting so much on the news and media and what's being passed around on social media. And maybe it's time that we turn off the TV and open our Bibles a little bit. And maybe we start fasting and praying and reading our Bibles and putting our confidence in a kingdom that Hebrews calls unshakable. Right? Because if history tells us anything, America's not going to be around forever. Okay? And I know that's hard to hear. If you're offended, you can email me at mike at idontworkhere.com. Um, or chris at riverstonechurch.com. <laughs> now, I'm not saying we're doing this on purpose. I'm not saying... Because I, I willingly did not do it on purpose. It just happens. And also, things are scary, man. Like a disease or a virus that we can't control, we don't have a cure for. That's scary. Political unrest is scary. Racial unrest is scary. Like what's going on in our country right now is scary. And I hate not being in control. That's something I've learned about myself in the last couple of years. Or not knowing what the future holds. It can make us feel hopeless and we just don't know what to do. One of the most practical and powerful things we can do is pray. And it's free. Uh, you don't have to retweet it or share it or whatever. You can just ride down the street. And when that guy with a MAGA bumper sticker pulls in front of you, just you pray for him, man. Pray that their hearts would be changed. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I talked to Chris about this because there's a few churches, um, including the church that I work at, that's doing something for the next 45 days. And I made it 45 because it's, that's the day after the election happens. And we know what the future is going to be for the next four years. But um, we're going to fast and pray for our communities, our homes, our churches, our nation. And we're going to fast from political social media. Meaning if someone posts something political, you don't like it, you don't dislike it, you don't argue with them, you don't start a fight. I'm not saying you have to stop eating or like not use social media at all. But just don't engage in the political discourse. Because no matter how you lean, it's divisive. And instead, we're going to pray for our leaders, for the next leader, for our churches and our homes. So I'm going to challenge you guys to do that. And, I, and every day, let's just pick a time and say noon, pray for 10 minutes. That's it. I'm not asking you to spend three hours on your face praying. Just a quick 10 minutes. And let's see what happens. Because I would dare say that our silence is going to be just as loud as if we were to add to the political discourse that's happening on social media. Right? And what if we also prayed and said, God, you're in control. Whatever happens, we're going to be okay. Because that's the truth. 
So if we relate that to where the disciples are at after Jesus' death and resurrection, they're a little hopeless, right? Jesus has been crucified. Their leader has been crucified. He's dead. They thought he was there to do, uh, establish the kingdom, right? Redeem Israel. They're probably in shock, confused, maybe a sense of guilt. Peter especially, because he denies Jesus three times, and then Jesus dies, right? Not to mention Judas portrays Jesus and then hangs himself. So it's chaos. They're probably like, I don't, I don't know what to do. They're hiding, they're scared. What do we do next? It sounds pretty familiar with where we're at right now. Then Jesus appears to them and he says, peace be with you. If you grew up in Episcopal or Methodist or Lutheran church or another liturgical church, you know that phrase really well. In almost every service, they do something called exchanging the peace or exchange of peace. Um, exchange of peace is a liturgical greeting that is a sign of reconciliation, love, and renewed relationship in the church community. It's an announcement of grace that we make to each other to remind us that the peace of God is readily available if we want it. We usually look that person in the eye, shake their hand, and say, peace be with you, and they respond with, and also with you. I used to go to... Um, I don't know how they're doing that now with social distancing, maybe like peace air fives or something. Um, I thought that would be fun here, that's fine. Um, I used to go to Trinity Anglican Church where Chris was uh, the worship pastor at, and I just remember going for the first few times how awkward it felt, and like, I have a hard time meeting people anyways, uh, and just feeling like I don't really even know what this means or what it's doing or why we have to do this. And, but over time, I look to, forward to it more and more. It's just such a nice reminder that the peace of God is always there and freely given. So I'm just going to stop for a second and say, I know life is crazy right now. Politics are crazy right now. Nothing makes sense. Life is scary. But I want to say this and you guys accept it. Peace be with you. Oh, that's awesome, man. So everyone just take a deep breath and relax because everything is going to be fine. I think with all the craziness and fears and doubts, we forget sometimes that God is still in control. He loves us. He is for us. He fights for us. He pursues us. He's taking care of us. And everything is going to be okay. Okay? All right. So with all this craziness going on, what does it mean to live in the kingdom? It means we seek first the kingdom of God. We look for what God is doing and we do it with him. God is moving in the midst of all of this chaos right now. If you look at what's happening in Portland, for example, two streets over from where all of the riots and burning and violence and stuff was happening, a few weeks ago they had a church service and people literally running to the river to be baptized. People committing their lives to Christ, recommitting their lives to Christ, and literally running into the gates of the kingdom. And if you look in Argentina and other South American countries, literally thousands of people are being saved and being baptized. The church in China, where it's illegal to be a Christian, is exploding. So God is doing something, and, it's, and our job in the kingdom is to do it along with him. God is drawing people to him in the midst of the chaos. The invitation of the kingdom is for us to be a part of what he's doing. It also means we wholly 100% can and should trust in him. 
Even further, he provides for us, takes care of us, and is even saying the world is completely safe for you to live in, which is honestly sometimes hard to accept, right, with all of the stuff that we see and read and hear. Matthew 6, 26 says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you little faith? Life in the kingdom means we are invited to come in and dwell with him. When we put our confidence in him, a new life begins and begins to flourish. The Christian life does not mean we stop at our old life. When we become a Christian at that moment of discipleship, that doesn't mean life stops and the rest of life is to just keep our head above water and manage what little pet sins we carry along with us every day. He gives us a job to do. Thank God, or else this would be the most boring hobby in the world. When we're reborn and resurrected with Christ, a new life begins and should flourish. That new life brings to pass in our life the things that God intends for us. Life in the kingdom is an invitation into something better than what we've settled for. And if you look at what we've settled for, it's not a whole lot. But we've also been given a purpose and mission in our new life. In that passage, um, in Matthew's account, uh, Jesus appears to the disciples and he delivers the great commission. And so I like the way Matthew says it. It's this way. It's going to be up on the screen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus' last and most important directive to us is to go out and make disciples and teach them how to live like he said. So over the years, the church has um, really embraced evangelism, I think. We've done it a lot of different ways. Uh, I remember in middle school or high school, uh, we did like this evangelism thing at the mall. Um, And I think back on it now, and I cringe a little bit, just how incredibly awkward it was. Uh, We basically just walked around and asked people if they knew Jesus and prayed with them. And I remember this one guy was literally working behind the counter. And um, we did the whole deal and prayed with him. And it was just so weird, man. Um, It was like the epitome of drive-through evangelism. Uh, We got in, did the thing, and then peaced out. Never talked to him again. Even though, like... A 14-year-old should probably not follow it with like a 40-year-old every other week. Um, and I don't know that many of us really knew what it meant to make disciples. It was just like a youth group thing that everybody did. And I don't know if like that was something that really took place in the 90s and early 2000s. I'm not sure. But um, we definitely did not do the second part. I mean, we just kind of converted this guy and left him to figure it out. Um, and I'm not saying it didn't work. But we definitely did not do the full commission that God gave us to do. Now, before we can teach, we have to have students, though. 
When we become a disciple, we are saying, I'm signing on to learn from Jesus. I think in the original text, it means be his apprentice. Um, I'm surrendering my life to him. When we go out with the intention of making disciples, we present the gospel in such a way that the greatest gift that they could ever receive is following and learning from Jesus. And when I say go out, I don't mean like, oh, it's Friday at three o'clock, we better go make disciples. That's not what I mean. Like, we can do that in our everyday lives. If we go back and look at Willard's definition of the kingdom, the kingdom of God is the range of his effective will, where what he wants done is done. God created us to do this with him, to create good where we are with him, wherever that is. We can only do that with him, and he makes that available to us. That's how we fill our lives with the kingdom. We know the kingdom by opening ourselves up to wherever we are, wherever we're doing, to the action of God with us. Having the expectation that God is going to be there before we get there. Like anything else, it's a learning process, though. This doesn't, um, and I'm going to read something out of his book here. It doesn't speak directly to making disciples, but it's more about opening our hearts and our lives to the kingdom. It says, Frank Laubach wrote of how in his personal experiment of moment-by-moment submission to the will of God, the fine texture of his work and life experience was transformed. In January of 1930, he began to cultivate the habit of turning his mind to Christ for one second out of every minute. After only four weeks, he reported, I feel simply carried along each hour, doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. The sense of cooperation with God in little things is what so astonishes me, for I have never felt it this way before. I need something and turn around to find it waiting for me. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. And I'll just read this last part. From a lonely missionary post in the Philippines, God raised Frank Laubach to the status of Christian world statesman and spokesman for Christ. He founded the World Literacy Crusade, still in operation today, and without any political appointment, he was influential on United States foreign policy in the post-World War II years. But he was forever and foremost Christ's man, and always knew that his brilliant ideas and incredible energy and effectiveness derived from his practice of constant conscious interface with God. So when we talked earlier about the only places in creation that his kingdom is not allowed or is not permitted to be, Frank Laubach made the distinct effort to inject the kingdom into those places. And look what he did. Um, I, when I was kind of trying to put this together, I listened to a podcast with John Piper and someone asked him the best way to make disciples. And I loved his answer because it's so simple. And all he said was, just pick. Just pick away. There's no limit to how we can make disciples. However you do it, our goal is to enable them to be a different, to have a different vision of themselves, God and the world, and then teach them how to live as Jesus commanded. So how do we teach them? Let's get real practical on this first part. Um, we have to be prepared. I um, found a Gallup poll that said, and this was like 20 years ago, um, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. And if anything, it's probably a little worse today. Um, with the internet and Google, um, 
we can find the answer that we're looking for in like less than three seconds. So why would we go any further than that? Who actually studies their Bible? Okay, bragging, that's fine. Um, As a child of the 90s, Google completely changed my study habits, which means I didn't really have any, uh, which made getting out of high school a little difficult. Sorry, Mom. Uh, because, again, when we can Google any subject and have the answer we're looking for in less than three seconds, why would we read any more than that? And if I'm being honest, it wasn't until, I don't know, the last couple of years that I really started to take this seriously. Um, and what I found out was if you study it, you actually begin to learn it, crazy enough. Um, and you begin to gain a deeper understanding and knowledge of the Bible. And then when that happens, that wisdom turns into confidence, and that confidence turns into boldness, and then you have no problem sharing what you know, right? Because if we don't really have an understanding of what we believe, how can we teach it to other people? The other part of teaching is caring for people and spending time with them. Jesus models this well on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. He appears to Cleopas and the other disciple and asks what they're talking about. Now, If you read the other accounts of scripture, Jesus does this for 40 days. Like he just pops in and says, hello, peace be with you, and then he's out, right? So he could have just popped in like that whack-a-mole game and then gone on to the next person, but instead he popped up and took the journey with them. He talked to them, he learned what their fears and their doubts were in that time, and then he sat down and he broke bread with them. He had a meal. And I think it's interesting that they didn't realize that it was Jesus until he started to serve them. Now, that's just an assumption on my part because he could have been disguising himself. There's a crazy conspiracy thing on the internet now that says Jesus was a shapeshifter. Uh, I'm super into that, but I can't, <clears throat> I can't entertain, I'm not gonna entertain that with what is said in scripture, right? It's just fun to think about. Um, But I think it's interesting that they did not recognize Jesus until he began to serve them. And after he began to serve them, he left, right? So when he takes that journey with them, he talks to them, he goes back through history, through the prophets and the law with them, all the way up to that present day, and he teaches them why what happened had to happen. Um, When Ravi Zacharias, who passed away Uh, unfortunately, earlier this year, talked about making disciples. He said it involves time, interaction, and teaching. Jesus spends the time to walk with those those disciples along the road to teach and remind them, go through the history, interact with them, and talk with them. Then he humbles himself and becomes a servant. One of the greatest ways I think that we can show people Jesus is we serve them, which is very counterculture right now, especially with so many different objectives and opinions and... Um, political leanings, we're we're more inclined to fight about those things than we are to serve people where they're at. Now, Jesus doesn't just give the disciples this commission and then leaves them hanging. He gives them the tools to do it, right? He says in a few days that they would receive the Holy Spirit. So one of those things is the power of the Holy Spirit. If we look at the disciples before and after Pentecost, they're completely different. Before Pentecost, they're running scared, some say a little cowardly. Uh, They're confused, they're without direction, pretty hopeless, 
and then after Jesus comes and then after the Holy Spirit comes, Peter and the other disciples go out and turn the world on its head. The Holy Spirit takes them from confusion to clarity. They don't have all the answers. They're not experts in everything. But they go out with a boldness that they did not have before and an understanding that they did not have before. However, the power of our lives as Christians comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He comes and convicts. The Bible calls him our helper. He shows us what is right and he dwells in us. And the second thing is, Listen, we're just scratching the surface on all this today, so I'm not going to give you all these benefits. There's just a couple. Plus, somehow it's 11.45 already. Kind of did it. Um, The second thing is uh, we get the benefit of community. Um, The great thing about what Jesus commanded is we don't have to do it alone. He commanded each individual disciple, but also the group as a whole. Life in itself is hard enough, much less to do it alone. And this is how Hebrews describes community. It's going to be up on the screen. Uh, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Being in community gives you the chance to be around people at different stages in their faith. Because at different times... We can be a teacher and a student all at the same time. And community allows us to bear the burdens alongside with each other. The great thing about this is we'll always be teachers and students in life. We have something to teach and learn always. Um, If you've known me for very long, uh, you'll know that the last several years have been a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I'm going to try and tell this really quickly so it doesn't seem self-indulgent, but... Um, there's a point. Uh, in 2013, um, I got a job in Atlanta, uh, making the most money I'd ever made. It was like a 50% pay raise. Amen. Um, that was in October. And then two months later, my dad died suddenly, um, within 24 hours. He had a rare stomach cancer that we didn't know he had. Um, and then a few months later, uh, my marriage started to have pretty severe problems that I didn't even really realized the severity of those problems at the time, and so we kind of just smoothed things out and uh, kept going. And then um, in 2016, those problems came back again, uh, and we separated for a while, and in the, in the middle of that separation, my sister passed away uh, really quickly from pneumonia, of all things, um, within 24 hours. And so <clears throat> my wife and I got back together, It's kind of funny how things like that will kind of pull you back together, but it only works for so long, right? Um, 2017, I lost my job. Uh, One of the best jobs I'd ever had working with friends that I'd known for 30 years. Um, And then the next year, we got divorced. Um, Just really tough, man. It was a a tough stretch. And then a few months after that, so it was just me and mom, and a few months after that, both sides of our family pretty much, uh, it might sound harsh, but disowned us. And so it's just been me and her since then. But here's the point. I didn't do any of that alone. I didn't go through any of that alone. I constantly had people praying for me and encouraging me, teaching me, listening to me, counseling me. And honestly, if it wasn't for them, I don't know how we would have gotten through it. 
Like there were time, there were a couple months last year when I was looking for a job that I just, I didn't have the money for rent. Like I, I didn't know what we were gonna do. And people gave me money out of nowhere. I mean, if I look back through all of that stuff, God took care of me in so many ways. And some of them were not even necessities. Like he gave me an awesome car that I love. Like that's the most frivolous thing, but it's given me so much joy. And it, it wasn't a necessity, really. God takes care of us when things are crazy and shakable. Like, when there's nothing solid, he takes care of us. Those people have done the work of the kingdom in my life. And I'm so thankful for that. And the other thing is, after Jesus gives them the, this commission, he makes a promise to them. That he would be with them for the end of the age. That's not nothing, y'all. That's a big deal. And that's, I'm probably not going to expand on that because I think we all know what that means. That we're never alone. He always takes care, of, takes care of us. And he provides for us. Go ahead and stand. Appreciate y'all listening to me ramble this morning. Um, the Great Commission establishes the supremacy and power of Christ then that power enables us to do the work of the kingdom. And then Jesus makes the promise of being with us until the end. The kingdom of God is an invitation for us to be active participants, not passive observers. All we have to do is say yes. So let's pray.